0: So Malachi 3, 13 through 18, hear the word of the Lord. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, that Uh, They that tempt God are even delivered. Then they, and this is where we really pick up our reading. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought, thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Amen. Let us turn to Luke 24. So the end of Luke's gospel, the road to Emmaus, and we will read from verses 13 down to 15. And behold... Two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. We'll leave the reading there. May God bless it to us. Let's pray for the preaching. Our holy God, we come once again to the preaching of the word. And Father, uh, the minister is well aware that in a day of quite spiritual shallowness, uh, he himself is not unaffected. And so he is pleading now for the work of the spirit that uh, would draw the people of God to the deep things of God. That they would not just glorify God, but also enjoy him fully enjoy him forever, and that that enjoyment would spill out of their heart and into their tongue, that they would speak much of the Lord to one another. We pray that the word of God would have its effect now then. May your minister preach faithfully, and may the people of God desire nothing more than to see Jesus Christ in the word of God. And so we pray to that end that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the contemporary, typical American church, you know the drill. You arrive at church. Somebody asks, how are you doing? You say, I'm fine, thank you. They say they're fine. And then you walk away. And that is sort of the protocol in the church. And that is sort of the depth of our spiritual conversation. Um, Early in my Christian walk, I was dealing with a brother who was dealing with some very heavy soul issues, and he lamented this fact greatly, that when he went to church, very little was spoken of substance one to another. And really, there didn't seem to be a care of uh, what we will talk about a little later, which is how God is working in each of us. And one day he said Uh, Ram, I I miss my old pastor who's retired, he was very old, but he comes from a different generation. And he said that when I greeted him, the first question on his mind was always, and he would ask this, is it well with your soul? Is it well with your soul? And and that's a remnant. He was earnest in that question. It wasn't just sort of a, a shallow greeting. This Question is sort of the vapor and the remnant of a doctrine and a practice called spiritual conference, which is really where conversations revolved around the question, and this is how maybe some of the Puritans would phrase it how stands it between God and your soul? And that was really the deep question here. And the conversations that were done in this manner really revolved around the soul's interchange with Christ. Meditations on Christ's person and work, not abstractly, but even experienced in the heart, the joy of eternity to come, matters of, uh, these were the matters of holy conferences between the brethren. And brethren, it would be a great help, and uh, I think to the health of this congregation, if we, when we met each other, spoke of the deep things of the soul, not conversations dominated. So, you know, Reformed churches often think that they're doing better than others, and really, I don't know about that. Uh, Reformed, at least American churches, you know, a lot of our conversations are dominated by things like doctrinal controversies. The church doesn't need to be mentioned, and the people don't need to be mentioned, but one church was always described to me in this way. Lunchtime conversation always revolved around where you stood in the Clark-Vantillion debate. I don't know that we're all that much different or better, really, frankly. Um, That is not spiritual conference. That is not spiritual conference. It is a way that the American Reformed Church has has managed to say that we are speaking about God, but we're speaking around God. And we're not speaking about God in the soul of the believer, as he is known intimately. Um, The best Reformed churches and the example of Scripture is that doctrinal purity and experimental piety go hand in hand it is always christ in the soul christ from the word you don't have you don't want to f- fall into experiential enthusiasts it's always christ in the word but also if he is the living god and we confess that his spirit lives in us surely there is some experience of the lord based on the word that we have and so Love of God and love of brethren then would naturally mean that when brethren would speak to each other, they were speaking of the deeper things of God. And this is a practice that we need to recover. And that's what I will try to cover as briefly as humanly possible, at least for me, by the Spirit's help, which is the doctrine of spiritual conference and our need for it, Uh, the doctrine of spiritual conference. I might have to come back to this because it is a vast topic. And the reason I preach this is in the hopes that our conversation, uh, our conversations as a congregation would be full of lofty thoughts of God and with a care for each other. And where we stand with the Lord and how we may better edify one another, conferring of him and seeing our identity in him and him having first place. And so we have three headings on your bulletin. Uh, the first is the heart. Second is the practice. And third is the blessing. Well, first, the heart. And in our text in Malachi, um, which we did cover as a congregation a very long time ago, uh, you find here a church that professed Jehovah as their God. Yet, the lament of the book is that they did not honor him. Their service to God was mere lip service. The penetrating question in Malachi one six, which we often pondered when we were in that book, was this. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? And so the people of God say that I do respect and revere Jehovah, but it was all lip service because they didn't really reverence him. They really didn't honor him. And in the third chapter, which we read portion of, we discover, if we read the first part, you would discover that most of God's people refused to keep God's ordinances. They said, what does it profit for us to keep the ordinances of God? Because they were after what the worldly people were after, and they saw worldly people profiting. People who lived for the life under heaven were profiting. And so they would bring, rather than the best to the Lord, the best sacrifices, they would bring polluted sacrifices, saying... What is the point in serving God? Because we are not getting what it is that the worldlings have. What use is there in serving God? These are worldly people who begrudgingly served the Lord, not from the heart. And so that's why the Lord has a controversy. He says, your words against me are stout. They didn't honor him or reverence him. But in our text, God shows us another group of people, a blessed people. The ones that did reverence him, the ones that did fear him and adore him. And what marks them out? Verse 16 says in Malachi 3, they spake often one to another of him. This is how, in some ways, you can distinguish the people of God. Those who truly honor the Lord are those when they speak to one another are speaking of the Lord. Right? Right? They had holy conferences with each other, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain that term a little later. But why is it that they did? Because they feared the Lord and thought upon his name. What that means is they thought upon his name means that they meditated on him often. And you know from your Bible and the catechisms that the name of God is really anything by which he reveals himself. Most especially the word of God itself. And so these are people who are constantly meditating on the word of God. And what is the one thing that they will speak of when they come together? God. They will speak of the Lord. And others will not in the church. This is the church we're speaking of in Malachi's day, right? Others don't speak of the Lord. Others will speak of other things. But when they get together, they speak of him. And staggeringly, God says to them in these words, in effect, Because you are the few who do, I will honor you. And I will put your words in the book of remembrance. And isn't that astonishing, staggering thing? Not that he's like King Arsuerus who needed to remember what it is that happened in his kingdom. But this is for our benefit, friends. It's meant to allure us. He says, you think on me. You meditate on me and you speak to one another of me when you gather together and I will remember you. You have my pledge. Uh, I will treasure every conversation that you had from the heart that concerns me. And you will be those who will be as my jewels, as verse 17 says. You are precious to me because so few of my people will do it. God's people in their most spiritual days, have taken note of our text. And they see how the Lord values conversations oriented around him that are the product of a heart that thinks on him. The Puritans, then, seeing this in the word of God, advocated for the practice, which is our sermon theme and title, called spiritual conference. Now, what is that? Well, specific definitions may vary a bit, but at its core... It is a spiritual conversation between a group of God's people, wherever two or more of them gather, that are founded upon the word of God. But the key that distinguishes it from a mere th- book study or a theology study is this. We speak of the God of the word and his interaction with our souls. How the, 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 the Lord is present in our soul and what the word of God is doing in in, us. in other words, it is the life of God in our soul. You remember Henry Scougal's wonderful little book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Right. This is what, when two people uh, who have the Spirit of the Lord dwelling in them come together, this ought to be the thing that is most natural to them. And yet, because of our flesh, and maybe because of the cultural fishbowl we're in, it seems to be the least um, natural thing to us. The aim of these conferences, of course... Uh, are, is really the aim of the glory of God, right? But also mutual instruction and encouragement one to another as pilgrims on the way, helping one another make it to heavenly Zion. Uh, we need this, brethren. We do. Uh, think on the believers in Malachi's time, right? There are so few of them. Most of the church is apostate and probably jeers at them for taking the word of God seriously Oh, there's a Messiah to come. You know, that's a substance of much of chapter 3. There's a Messiah to come. Really? You believe that? You foolish uh, friend of ours. Right? There's so few, you will spend how much time and money going to the temple and taking the best sacrifices? Well, in a lot of ways, they were treated as the outcasts, even though they are not the troublers of Israel. The others are. Yet they are the ones who are treated as outcasts. And that's not so different today. If you take the word of God seriously... Uh, you are going to be treated as a fool, even in parts of the church. But when they saw themselves treated in this way and they were in the minority, uh, they would get together with one another and speak of the Lord. And that is what Bible-believing churches, those who stand firm on the word of God, especially Reformed churches, need to be doing more often, to confer and meditate on him. You think on these people in Malachi 3, what would they often speak of? You know they were speaking of Christ, Messiah to come, right? That's the whole promise in in Malachi, right? It's the last book of the the Old Testament. And they would often center their conversations around Christ, even as they dwell among a people hostile to the truth of God. You can almost imagine in Malachi's day, the people bringing God's word to one another, a promise from the word of God. You know, what will it be like when Messiah comes? What will happen to the world? What will happen to the Jewish nation, right? And you know that there were people like that because you see them when Christ comes, Anna and Simeon. Clearly, these are those who are speaking to one another like in Malachi chapter 3. So then, what is the desire that leads to such spiritual conferences? Well, really, it's quite simply this. It is a love and reverence for God in Jesus Christ that's where it begins which is knit together with the second table of the law right that's the first table of the law the second table of the law is this love for the brethren right you put those two things together uh, love for the brethren of course children you remember is how we are marked out as his disciples right you take a love for god and you take a love for your disciples for his disciples and what would happen you would think that if our soul were gripped with these two things we would speak of the lord and on top of that We would speak of how we have known the Lord. You know, if you've experienced him in your life, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's what the Bible says. If he has given you his love and his tender mercies in Christ, you would be joyful as the Samaritan woman was at the well. If he has given you victory over a besetting sin, you would want to tell others about it. And how the Lord has broken chains that you had felt were too hard to deal with. If he has even given you a chastisement and correction over your sin, you would come and say, this is, I see the consequence of my sin in this, but I am so thankful that he chastens me as a good father. If you have experienced something of his presence, his glory, his majesty, if you have a taste of the glories of the life to come in the word of God and an eager anticipation of heaven and your meditation on it, ought you not speak of these things one to another? Why do worldly people speak of worldly things? They're gripped by the world. They can't help it, right? Look at this big bonus I got. Look at the car I have. Look at the house that I've been able to to buy. Look at the big ring that my husband or, or fiance bought me. Right, Worldly people are gripped with the things of this world, and they are so quick to speak of their passions and their lusts and their possessions. But we, people of God, share Christ, the greatest possession of all, and we are the heirs of heaven. What ought we to speak of with each other? This is a serious question for you and me. What should we be speaking of when we meet one another? You recall when the church was asked in Song of Solomon 5, verse 9, What is thy beloved more than another beloved? Did she stammer? Did she wait uh, a few minutes? Did she seem to have to search her Bible? No, she knew Christ both in her heart and in her mind. And so she spoke of him as he who is altogether lovely, the one fairer than all the sons of men. His majesty was heartfelt, to her, It is almost like we just read in Revelation chapter 1 this morning, the glory of Jesus Christ as the God-man. And we ought to have such high and lofty thoughts so that when we speak of Christ to one another, how his eyes are as eyes of flame, his feet as brass. This is my beloved. He peers into my heart and my soul. And he knows me completely. We know him. Based on doctrinal knowledge, but not purely doctrinal, right? He's not a Christ of our imagining. The enthusiasts go in that direction. They come up with all kinds of crazy thoughts of God. That's not where we go. We go to the Bible, but surely there's something of the Bible that enters our heart and our mind isn't there by the spirit. It is experimental knowledge of her Lord that the bride culminates with. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. There is no one that she is more taken with than the Lord. And so when she confers with these others, she speaks of him readily. As the scripture says what? Let him that boasts, boast in the Lord. How much boasting is there in your life and mine too, I suppose, of the Lord? Boasting is to other people isn't it? It's also to your soul, but it's also to other people. How much of there is there? Our boast is in him. Whenever we come together, we ask who else or what else is worth boasting in besides knowing Christ. And when believers boast in Christ and make him the center of their conversations, they are assured that not only does he take note, not only does he note it in the book of remembrance, but he enters into it. And this is the blessedness of spiritual conference. Um, in other words, their experience of him grows, actually, as they share him one to another. When I, whenever I've been to the best example of Reformed churches today, this is what you notice. There is more heartfelt knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ the more they speak of him one to another. And they know him better. In Luke 24, 15, what did we read of the disciples on the road to Emmaus? And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, right? They're communing together and reasoned. What happened? Jesus himself drew near and went with them. They communed, they reasoned through the scriptures and their experience of what had just happened, right? In their life, in Providence, in the cross. And Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Or what is the promise in Matthew 18, if you want it more plain? Wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there's in my name again, those who think on his name, there am I in the midst of them. He is there, he is here, he is present whenever we make him the centerpiece of our conversation. And that really, for the Christian, is what would make us immediately run to such conversations. You're telling me my Lord can be found in them. Let me go there. Let me meet the body of Christ in this way. Thomas Watson said, when believers have holy and gracious conference, Jesus draws near and wherever he comes, he brings a blessing along with him. Uh, This is from the Christian soldier, which you often know better these days as heaven taken by storm. There's a whole section there on spiritual uh, conference, which may be helpful to you. And so conferences are spurred on when we love Christ, we love the brethren, and anticipate that Christ draws near to us when we engage in them. But there's another aspect that must be drawn out for spiritual conference, which is that we are pilgrims on the way. We have to never forget that. This world is not our home. And when pilgrims get together, what should they be speaking of? Uh, Their temporary residence that they're in? or where they will be together with Christ forever. right? This is part of the problem in why our conversations are so worldly in the church, even in the Reformed Church. We don't see that this is not our home. What do we read of in that great hall of faith? Hebrews 11.16. But now they desire what? A better country. A better country that is in heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, we often open what we call the Hall of Faith, and we eagerly look at the works that these men had done and women had done. But what is it that drove them? They desired something better than this present age. They desired a better country. And for that reason, God is not ashamed to be called their God. The same sentiment is in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are where? Above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your, and here's the key word, affection on things above, not on things where? On the earth. For ye are dead and your life is actually where? Hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We are called to be a heavenly-minded people. We are here for a very short time. Remember again how your life is portrayed. It is but a vapor. This is not your permanent residence. You are making your way through this place. And our affections are to be things on uh, above and not on things on the earth. And wherever our heart is, wherever our affection is, what does Jesus say? There our mouth will follow, right? Boys and girls, um, when you're going on vacation to some wondrous place, on the days leading up to it, you're probably consumed with it. Right? It's all you can think about. It's what I'm going to do when I get there, what it's going to be like, uh, at least if you're anything like me when I was a child. Right. In the same way, we ought to be excited and we ought to enjoy the thoughts of the life to come. And that draws itself into this life. We think about this, right? What is it going to be like to enjoy God in his presence? How many of us have thought on that for more than a second? And unlike a a vacation, right, we will actually, by God's grace, be able to pull heaven down to earth in a sense in a sense when we live a heavenly minded life here when Christ draws us uh, near to him and our affections are set upon him this is why we pray thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven and it begins with the affections being transformed to desire the heavenly country And I'm not going to deal tonight with the objection that you can be so heavenly-minded as to be of no earthly good. I think that is patently false other than to say there is a distinction between being an escapist and being heavenly-minded. As you labor unto unto the Lord, you are heavenly-minded. But where are your desires and affections ever set? Heavenward. Now, one last matter as we continue to lay the groundwork here, which is the Sabbath day. A spiritual conference is not just for the Sabbath, but it is especially for the Sabbath. Uh, Two of the main reasons I believe the Sabbath is not enjoyed, and I mean that, enjoyed by God's people is, one, because we don't delight in the Lord and his people, and two, we don't see ourselves as pilgrims on the way to heaven. The very things we have considered thus far. But Isaiah 58 is very plain that those who delight in the Lord will delight in the Sabbath. And Hebrews 11 and Colossians 3 says that God's people look forward to heaven. And if so, they would enjoy the worship of God. And then they would also enjoy as an overflowing of worship, spiritual conference with one another. And because we don't know how to delight in holy conferences about uh, God, we find it actually hard to enjoy and delight in the Sabbath day of the Lord. What will eternity be like? It will be an enjoyment of God and an enjoyment of God's people. And spiritual conference is going to give you both. You know, the old Westminster Directory of Public Worship said when you're not in the public services on the Sabbath day, I have it here on your bulletin, I have it underlined here, among other blessed activities, you know, the, day, the Sabbath is a day of activities catechesis, prayer, psalm singing, visiting the sick, and helping the needy, etc., etc. We should also have holy conferences. Holy conferences, which is the theme of our sermon, which is that we would uh, profit from the Sabbath day if we would speak of God, but God in our soul and God as we have experienced Him. This will help us guard the Sabbath as a heavenly day, uh, uh, which is reminded of in the 123rd Psalm, right? It, it, we say, Unto thee, I lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. We are to look upward towards heaven, especially on the Lord's day, and we are to behold our God. And I understand that part of the problem here with us, and I'm not immune to it, is because we are not... um, very eager to sort of move in this direction. We're very comfortable. We talk about comfort this morning. We're very comfortable with where we are spiritually. And we're not willing to press ourselves to be blessed in this way. And so I'll just say, uh, when it comes to spiritual conference and the Sabbath day, the Sabbath is often a spiritual thermometer for us. You know, if our mind is set on affections of the video game, or it's of the movie, or it's on the restaurant, uh, or work, then our heart is set on earthy things, right? We see that. Because these things are often lawful things. But we're finding that our heart is captivated like Lot's wife by something on the earth. If I cannot think of God so supremely one day of the week, then there is something that these things have as a hold on me. And we find that we are not yet fit for heaven and our heavenly country. But spiritual conference is actually a means to grow in that. This is what you will find. You know, There have been Sabbath days where I've had deep engaging uh, conversations with brothers in the Lord that have dragged on. And then you say it's midnight already of, well, we have to go because we are conferring of the Lord. We have tasted a bit of heaven and what heaven will be like. And so with some scriptural warrant and the desire set before us, let's talk about practical guidance, which we'll consider in the second heading. Uh, And so as I've already alluded, the practice can at first uh, seem alien and awkward and weird Uh, if you've attempted and not practiced it. Uh, But that very feeling, I would say, is just a gauge. Uh, Are we prepared for heaven? If we find it awkward and weird to speak of God and the Lord to one another whom we will share eternity with, then perhaps there's a lot of sanctification that needs to happen before we get there. That's a testimony to us. That's a testimony for us. What does Psalm 45 say when, when, when the, the psalmist thinks on the Lord? His tongue becomes as the pen of a ready writer, ready to flow, saying of Jesus, he is fairer than the children of men. You see, the, the idea in that psalm is that it is very easy to speak of Jesus Christ to one who loves him and knows him. In fact, he is the first thought. He is uh, the one that you speak of when your uh, tongue begins to open. And so the practice will begin with your own solitary meditations of the Lord. Psalm 104, 34. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. And maybe this is where we have to begin. How regular are your meditations of the Lord and are they sweet? Do you think on him often? Do you think on the Lord when you have a spare moment? Regular meditations on scripture, but not just the doctrine of scripture, but on scripture as it reveals your Lord Jesus Christ, that is the interface your soul has to the truth of scripture. And that is where you need to live in your meditations on the Lord. For instance, there are many propositional truths in the scripture, and I want to go through a couple of these with you so you can understand how to meditate on them properly. In Romans chapter 5, you have some propositional truths. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now this is a glorious truth, isn't it, friends? A wondrous truth indeed. But how does your soul apprehend that truth. Well, the very same apostle who wrote this shows you how to do that, right? Paul, used by the Holy Ghost to write scripture, said in Galatians 2.20, which we often cite, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how his meditation of the Lord is sweet? Not only did Christ die for sinners, Christ and loved them and is the, the demonstration of God's love for sinners, but Christ loved me and he died for me. And doesn't that give you something to speak about to your brethren? Brother, sister, it has been a wonderful meditation to know that the Lord had loved me from eternity past. He entered this world he lived a perfect life. He suffered for me. He thought on me on the cross, and he died for me, and he gave himself for me. And now I think, what should my life be lived like, in view of that? You see, that is the nature of spiritual conference. It's not so much of saying, well, you know, the doctrine of limited atonement teaches this and this and this, and can you believe that the uh, these folks or the Armenians they believe this or that? That that you know, some of that is necessary. I understand. But if that's how our conversations are dominated, we've missed the plot entirely, haven't we? That is not the point of speaking to our brethren primarily. It is when the soul lays hold of a truth of the scripture and doesn't just keep it on the pages of the Bible, but brings it to the soul as a sweet meditation, then you have something to talk about, really. Uh, Think about how to meditate when you have need of assurance of salvation and you come to your Bible, right? Proposition of the word. Christ came into the world to save sinners, uh, even the chief. Meditation on that word, right? Sometimes we all memorize that, fine. But have you actually found it to move your own heart? And that's the question, isn't it? You know, you say, I am a sinner. I am an awful sinner, and I seem to be more awful in, in my eyes as I open the word all the time. Perhaps I am the chief sinner of all. Yet I have faith in Christ. And I, I believe then Christ died for me because I am a sinner. And for that reason, I am saved. And these are the things that move beyond just the propositional truths of the scripture to the soul, having the life of God in the soul. Right? And that's where we need to be, brethren, is we believe these things by faith, but we don't let them remain on the pages of Berkhoff's or Turretin's systematic theology or in our Bible which is where it needs to be first and foremost, of course. But then it comes into the heart. You think on these things. You think on the implications. You draw other scriptures to bear. You roll them around in your mind until your heart is warmed and gripped by the truth of God in the soul. You sense the glory of Christ, right? And the affections go towards him in heaven. You think of his three hours on the cross. You think of him being forsaken by the Lord and what that means. Uh, of whether uh, uh, how how much he terribly suffered for for every single one of my solitary sins, that all of those sins that I say are so many they 're more than the hairs on my head, the Lord Jesus Christ took that on himself, and the Father poured down his wrath, and Now I understand how Paul apprehends that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, and now I have something to talk about. Think of other propositions in the word you encounter. Propositions about the kingdom of grace. I had a very godly uh, young man in Scotland. He, he said, you know, I understand the kingdom of grace, and, I, I, and then I think about what is the kingdom of grace going to be like in heaven? What's it going to be like as it flowers? And we were able to talk about how you know we experience the kingdom of, uh, of, of God as it will be, which is this kingdom of glory, right? This is what our, our theology teaches. But we experience it in seed form now. What are those seed fruits that we experience of the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of uh, glory rather to come? You know, this was a wonderful conversation with a, um, a young man who was just a little bit older than my oldest son. These are the things that spiritually mature people talk about and, and long to look into. Propositions about the nature of sin and its heinousness isn't that sin is lawlessness abstractly. We say sin is so leprous And I had a chance to really grasp a hold of how my lust, you know, we talk about last Lord's Day, how our lust is itself so heinous and how leprosy now I understand in the Old Testament, how it spreads and how it's heinous matches what I have experienced of sin in my own life. Nature of the body of Christ, propositions of that are meditations for the soul to hang on to, such that when we come to the Lord's Supper or we are in fellowship and communion with God's people, we can talk intelligently and experientially of these things. Propositions about the nature of forgiveness, how we need to talk to one another about these things, the struggles there, the grace there, how others have forgiven me. Of things that I thought were unforgivable, but God has worked grace in their heart to forgive me or vice versa. Propositions about the life to come that drive us to pray. Why does John pray, even so come Lord Jesus? It's because those propositions have driven themselves into his heart and now he anticipates and longs for that day. When the word says we are as a bride prepared for her husband. We see Christ's beauty in the word. We say, "O oh, my soul, I must prepare for the wedding day to meet him. I must not be like the foolish virgins that are not prepared to meet the Lord. I must put away my sin. I must put away my sluggishness. Right? This is the, the way that the soul meditates on the word of God. You need to first, before you talk to one another, gain a sense of how God's word ought never just remain on the page, but must penetrate the soul. That's how it will flow out of your tongue, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh, Matthew 12. So meditation is preparatory for conference. And these spiritual conferences can happen in a variety of settings. And so I'll set some of the settings for you uh, that you may profit or maybe be driven to, to some of these settings yourself. So they can be in large groups. They can be with even perhaps the entirety of a congregation this size. They can be in smaller groups, you know, two or three brethren coming together to speak on the Lord. Um, that can be something that's easily done um, as you have close brethren. They can be in family groups, uh, parents coming together with their children. Right, This is something that ought to be done in the home. All sizes and all shapes can talk to one another. But regardless of size, when you get together, what is at the heart of it? It is the Holy Scripture. It is the Holy Scripture with the view of the soul's apprehension of its truth. And for us, the way to begin is through sermon meditation. Since the minister has preached what I trust is orthodox truth, you also will avoid the problem of today's small group Bible studies. What does the scripture mean to you? Right? That work is done in the sermon. You know what the meaning is, uh, at least if the minister has done his work. Um, And so our forefathers were quite wise that they said spiritual conference should revolve primarily around the sermons that are preached. And so what you do is you take the truth of God's word as it is soundly exposited, then you confer on it, and you apply it and encourage each other in it during the week. And let me just say, with three unique sermons every week, you have a lot to talk about. Three texts. Three sermons every week, you have all kinds of things to talk about. And you have to know this. In 50 minutes to an hour, the minister can't cover all the applications to you. He really just gets you started. From there on, you are to meditate on it and bear fruit from it in your lives. Uh, And it is through this practice of spiritual conference that you find greater fruit come out of sermons. Because you see what God is showing in the Word of God to your brother or your sister, and you are able to encourage them and exhort them. So many times after a sermon preached, somebody will come by the Spirit's power and help and say, Pastor, I thought on this in your sermon. It wasn't uh, wasn't directly addressed, uh, but that is the Spirit's work. And imagine conferring one to another and profiting from the sermons together in that way. In fact, If you have opportunity and do not confer with others over the sermon, and I've been convicted by this, you are actually, our forefathers would say, have been neglectful in your duty to receive the word of God preached. Larger Catechism, question 160, says it is required of those that hear the word preached to not just meditate on it, but also confer of it, to confer of it. And if you don't, you actually haven't. Uh, the word of God preached as you should. Because think about this, brethren, you receive the word as a congregation. Should not the word then affect you as a congregation where you are to speak of it one to another? Afterward, it is not meant to be individualistic. Now, after we had heard that sermon on reverence in public worship, I said, if the Lord has done a work in you, how can you leave unaffected? And it's been great to see many brethren will sit and meditate and pray with the Lord and do business with the Lord individually. But we are to go and take then the next step, which is let us speak to one another of the truths of the Word. We have heard the voice of God in the Scripture. It's so bizarre to me, um, and I say this as one afflicted in this way, that we can then go and say, hey, how's the weather doing? How are we talking about work and everything else when we have just heard the word of God come down to us? Should we not speak to one another concerning the truths of the word? For instance, think on last week, we heard of concupiscence and sinful desire. Is there not much to speak of one to another concerning that kind of truth? Or last morning uh, sermon, following Jesus wherever he leads. Or what about the church at Pergamos on Wednesday and compromise with the world? Is there nothing to talk about to one another? Or are you going to just devolve into the same old doctrinal controversies that you guys like to talk about all the time and the various other things going on in your life, but not how God is at work in your soul? Or this morning when we talked about the need for gospel labors to go into the field, should we not have any interest in talking to one another about missions and church planting? You know, we really have to ask, what is wrong with us that we have no interest in talking on these things? Why did we even come if the sermon ends and we have no thought of it again? A strange thing, friends. And when we talk about having awkward conversations in church or we don't know how to talk to one another, well, you have something to talk about. We just don't talk about it. And so, we must not keep truth at arm's length, but it must move into the soul. For instance, here's another example. There'll be a lot of examples tonight. Um, In the spiritual discussion time after the last communion service, uh, as you came to my home, we had spiritual discussion, and asked us to meditate and respond to the question, what are the treasures that Jesus speaks of that we are to lay up in heaven? I think it was a profitable time, but now I would say, Let us ask and uh, let's spend more time on this. What particular treasures do you believe that you have laid up in heaven and are awaiting you? And what is it that you believe you have laid up on the earth that moth and rust are eating away at? See, that's the way spiritual conversations, spiritual conference is meant to go. Such that we see God at work in our lives and in our souls and we reflect on him. There are various settings by which we can do this, as I mentioned. And I think the easiest place is through sermon discussions in which you can have groups of all size and shapes. Uh, do it in the family when you go home, you know, around the table used to talk a lot in our home. What did you remember from the sermon? But that's not enough, is it? How were you affected by the sermon? How has God spoken to you in the sermon to you, my son, my daughter, my wife, myself, you can do that among brethren. You can do that here in the church. With larger groups, probably best to have a minister or elder help moderate the discussion. Um, as a session, we have been very supportive of sermon discussion times. So perhaps we'll open up a room where we can do that so that we can confer uh, during the time of catechism hour or something like that. And these settings, these larger settings, are often good training grounds on how to conduct conferences in uh, smaller settings. And the kinds of questions that we ask, the kinds of reflections and meditations, they're not, this is a snare, isn't it? They're not to show off how smart we are. They're not to show off how prideful we are in what we know, but rather to grow in the experimental nature of the word and its application. Oftentimes, you are blown away by the most humble saint who maybe cannot articulate all the doctrines of Scripture, but the Word of God lands in their heart and their life, and they will speak of the Lord as if they, the Lord is their closest and dearest friend, because they know Him experimentally through the Word of God. And you will be staggered when you're dealing with spiritually mature people, how spiritual conferences will then cause you yourself to grow in the Lord What is actually demonstrated in these conferences is humility and humbleness, a greater appreciation and enjoyment of Christ and His glory and our sense of our need for Him. And I have seen, for your encouragement, kernels of these things in our congregation that I am very, very encouraged by and I'm thankful for. Um, Many of you do come up and confer with me on ways to apply the text, given convicting thoughts that you've had. And I've seen you in small groups uh, spur one another on in spiritual conference. Um, And here's part of that. It is meant to be a spurring of one another on. Hebrews 3.13 should be part of our conference. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through what? The deceitfulness of sin. You need to talk with one another about the Lord, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, this is a spiritual duty we have to one another. Sin is so deceitful, it requires not just your minister, not just your elders, but one another as the body of Christ. It is one of the primary ways the Lord keeps us from the deceitfulness of sin. How many, especially our older brethren or more experienced brethren, will teach you plainly on how sin has deceived them in the past? And how young man, young woman, maybe you're not very young, but you may be younger experientially, You need to stay away from this. This is what it has done in my life. Stay far away. Families, of course, can get together and talk about the sermons, but especially this is helpful for your children so that they can know how to walk with the Lord themselves. They need to know Jesus personally, as the apostle did, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. See, that is a knowledge of Christ that comes through experience, isn't it? And that's common to all spiritual conferences. However, your children need to know more about how God is alive in your soul. And you need to open up to them uh, in ways that you can, that are appropriate I know some of you do this around family worship, and I'm always thrilled by that. Confer as a family after family worship. Parents can reflect on the word of God and how it provokes their own soul so that their children can understand how God is at work and know how to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And that's different from family worship because it's a conference. You're talking of the Lord. In addition, groups of believers can meet together, especially in the week, um, Often, open-ended fellowships that we get together for really just devolves into worldly thought, and you'll baptize it with some psalm singing. Um, that's not conferring with one another the things of the Lord. I'm not saying that you can't talk about things of the world, especially outside of the Lord's Day, but I am saying that our, our primary motive in getting together should be to speak of Christ. Um Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And as Covenanters, and I know my time's going, so um, we were once known for our society meetings, which included spiritual conference, even without any ministers present. And so this is something that you all can do together. But also one-on-one, and this is where I think there can be an immediate change in our congregation. When you speak to one another, speak meaningfully. One to another. You know, if the Lord says that we will be brought to an account for every idle word, that must mean something to us. Ought it not? There are only so many words I will say with my mouth to any single brethren. And I ought to speak to the use of edifying, as we talked about last week on vivification. I ought to seek to edify one to another. You know, you say to brother or sister, as we have heard in psalm 66 come and hear all ye that fear god and i will declare what he hath done for my soul you know these are some of the things that we speak to our brethren this is why frankly at the end of the day you know people bemoan that the the church is often shallow well why is it shallow we won't do these kinds of things until we're willing to talk to one another in these deep and meaningful ways of course we'll be like other societies Right? Maybe we'll be around each other a bit more, but at the end of the day, it will be shallow. You can also ask your brother or sister, how has it been for your soul? Right? Be interested in them. What is the Lord doing? And maybe they're not ready to open up, but at least leave the question before them. So that they understand you have a care. And will your prayer life not also be more enriched as you pray for them? How many of us say, I don't know what to pray for? Well, the more and more you talk to your brethren, the more their burdens become your burdens. And you pray for them. And we are called to bear one another's burdens in the Lord. This is the crux of spiritual conference in a one-on-one setting. And one of the biggest problems in the American Reformed churches of our generations anyway, is we don't talk that way. And yet we think we're very spiritual. But how is that possible, that we're very spiritual but we won't talk that way? We usually degenerate into doctrinal controversy, church politics, gossip, that we sanctify as prayer requests, right? Or we critique another group or another and how they're failing in some practice or another. But there's no experimental piety. Little reflection on the person and work of Christ. Little sense of awe and reverence for God. And I have been so convicted by this, Our forefathers that we love to talk about so much would probably scarcely recognize us as a reformed church. You have the form, but you don't have the heart. And yet we wear the badge reformed with pride. We miss the point of the scripture and we're proud of it. Search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. Little do we speak to one another and reflect on the question of Christ. What think ye of Christ? I say this as one who has been guilty very often, and I preach this humbly, greatly convicted of it myself. And unless we have come from elsewhere, brethren, it is likely we have not experienced anything else, and I understand that this is our experience of 21st century Reformed Christianity in the United States. And so we need to go beyond that to what Scripture teaches and the best examples of the churches throughout history. And again, I just want to put this here. It's not that you can't inquire on a person's work or or life or anything like that, but put the primary things first. Christ and our soul's health. This will be new to us, but I would say press on. It may be awkward, but by God's grace, try it, and you will find that as you grow together in this as a congregation, You will be surprised and you will find your own meditation of Christ. This is the thing. I have gone home so many days after talking and having spiritual conferences of this sort where I have gone to bed so joyful in the Lord after I've seen the work of Christ in my brethren and in my own heart too. And so with that, just sort of lead us and conclude briefly, we'll consider the blessing. So a time gone, let me just say a few words about the Lord's blessings in this to spur you on and that you would not ignore this sermon, but at least try to wrestle through it in some way. The first blessing we have already mentioned, the Lord remembers and blesses those that honor him when they speak of him. Does it mean anything to us that he has a book of remembrance? I've always been staggered by that, right? Should you not, could you imagine going to glory And flipping through it, if it is something, I don't know what form it takes, but imagine it is a book. And imagine flipping through it and seeing how little is there from you to God. Wouldn't that be a terribly convicting thing? Yes, I am saved by the grace of the Lord. But could you imagine going up there and seeing that your portion of the book is very small indeed? And yet, he fills his book with every thought that we have of him. And that's incredible, and it ought to be a blessing we seek. The second blessing we have already mentioned as well, Jesus Christ meets us when we speak of him by faith. Our hearts go from being spiritually dry to burning with faith and love. Luke twenty four thirty two says, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? I suppose that ought to be enough for us. But so many other blessings come. Our hearts become knit together as the people of God. We have true fellowship and communion with God, with one another. We bear each other's burdens. We pray one another more. We learn how to handle the word of God better as we learn from each other. We're driven to meditations of the word with more profit. When I have come to a man who has uh, so much Christian experience, and I, I'm, I think on the way he meditates on the word of God, I say, I hope that one day I will be able to meditate like that. A man who can simply take a simple phrase in the scripture and have hours of meditations of it. That is something that we grow in when we confer with one another. Um, our children learn that God is alive in his people, and adults are reminded of it too. God is not just out there, transcendent, but he's also imminent in us by his spirit. Hebrews 3 says, we will see the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is weakened in us. And you will learn, if you are one of these, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is one of the best things about spiritual conference. You can see whether or not you are experiencing the Lord as you ought to be, or if you actually don't don't know him because you don't meditate on him, and you don't pray, and you don't talk and confer of him. If our learning is just the learning, uh, the idolatry of learning, and not learning of Christ, and we will edify and bear each other's burdens. We will not be troubled by this world, because as we speak with one another, as those in Malachi's day, we will long for a heavenly country all the more. Such that when we go back into the world, we have been bolstered, to remember that Jesus Christ told me to be of good cheer, for he has overcome the world. And I see it as I speak to one another of this heavenly country. And you comfort one another that where he is, you will be too. You will long for the resurrection more and more, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. And we seem to think that text is only for funerals. It is not. It is for us to comfort one another in spiritual conference. When did you last? Here is a uh, not a condemning, a convicting thing. When did you last comfort each other with those words? If you need help in your prayer life, as I've said, spiritual conference help, you will have two things ever set before you, the glory of God and also the needs of his people. And you will better seek to serve your brethren out of love to them. And this is going to push you towards vivification as well. And the unity of the body, how the unity of the body grows when we talk of the Lord one to another. And worldliness is put away as we come tasting heavenly Canaan, in the midst of God's people. And you know, best of all, Jesus Christ more through a glimpse of him through the body of Christ in your soul. Well, this sermon is really the beginning of the doctrine for you. Maybe you ought to confer of it one to another. And in whatever way, whatever environment, grow in grace by putting it in action. Come and talk to me if you need help and have ideas. But may we know the blessing of those first disciples on the road to Emmaus. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Amen. May God bless the word of God to us. Let us arise for prayer if able.